RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Here on RCR, we like to talk to people who do stuff. And I can't think of um, a better person in the do stuff category than Shane Hyde to talk to. Hillbilly, Bushman. He's been catching possums and other predators for 40 years. He knows the bush like the back of his hand. Maybe the back of his back. I don't know. Anyway, Shane Hyde is here to talk about what he does, the whole um, thing around pest control, the attitude of the people in that business to innovation and inventiveness, um, and we'll go through all those things. So, Shane, welcome to RCR. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks a lot, Paul, for having me on board. It's um, actually really, really difficult to get any media exposure without actually funding it myself, so it's much appreciated that you're taking an interest in the subject. It's a really interesting story from the skim over that I've already done. First of all, um, I like the – I used to go do a lot of running in the bush. That's nothing on what you do, but it's a particular kind of environment. What is it about the bush for you? Ah, uh, it's home to me. Um, it's uh, right from childhood, so it's uh, the right place for me to be. And, and like many hunters, it's a place that's peaceful, lets your mind rest, and you just go and do what you do as a human. Do you think there's an energy? Of course there is. There's an energy in the bush, isn't there? Ah, uh, there's energy in the bush, and um, uh, but you have to be attuned to it. So it does take time to develop, and I've just been lucky enough to uh, actually been brought up in that environment, and I spent hours and hours there. So yeah, it can but, be quite scary to some. Well, yeah, I can imagine, and um, well, I know I've been well, got lost in the bush once, <laughs> managed to get out. Uh-huh. But uh, in an article I, I read recently, um, the the person who obviously accompanied you uh, makes the point that you you seem so sure-footed there, you know? Like you know where everything uh, yeah, is well, and where you put your uh, next we, foot, you know? Yeah, when I was brought up, it's in the, the back country of Taranaki and um, as a hobby, as a, a six, seven-year-old, it was running down goats on papa banks. So uh, it's only natural that um, if you live on concrete, um, it's uh, a little bit different in the bush than if you're actually uh, born there and running around. It's the same. I, I, I don't do so well on water and people do really well on the sea. So yeah. um, it's what you're brought up to again. So you, um, I think, uh, in the Northland Forest area, is that correct? Well, the article I read, anyway, had you um, there. Most of, our, most of our work is in Northland. Um, I have worked abroad um, further south and okay. um, worked down there. Is so, that what abroad um, is, uh, further south? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It makes you it sound like going go overseas, much mate. Further north. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is the condition currently of, of that bush? Uh, the bush, the bush is recovering, um, and our our local people have done quite a good effort up here. But the main thing that's made the difference for the bush in Northland is actually the um, possum fur trade, uh, with um, initially with skins, but um, more so more recently is the use of plucked fur and hand plucked fur. And um, when you look across the whole of New Zealand, um, there's quite a, a big group of, um, uh, you would call them harvesters, um, in that they are doing pest control, but they're also recovering the resource. And, um, 
as an example, when we first moved to Northland in the 80s, it was quite easy to go and shoot 70, 80 possums every night. That wouldn't wow. have been a problem. But since the uh, fur recovery people have uh, been active up here uh, and across New Zealand, the numbers are pretty consistently low. Yeah, because that is, well, that has been, it seems to me anyway, the argument um, used in favour of 1080, for example, is that it's not possible to physically get to all these pests, especially out in rugged, hard-to-get-to areas. So there's never a hope, even with armies of people, that you could ever combat the numbers that way. So we have to drop this poison and nuke them. You're kind of saying that's not the case. Well, uh, again, coming from a family that's uh, got a long conservation history in forest and bird and um, uh, killing possums in the middle of Waitotra Forest, uh, flying in with a helicopter to get skins out when skins had a value. And um, one of the things I'll point out is that it's quite often said that people can't get there, but um, under OIA, Doc replied that there's hardly nowhere in the North Island that hasn't at some time had ground control done. Right. So, um, the separation, the separation needs to be at whether you're just targeting possums or whether you're targeting multi multiple species, and yep. at, at what level you want to reduce them to. So, okay, I want to get on to uh, some of the incredible ideas that you've had. Uh, it seems like, um, um, and you know, could have the wrong impression, but the establishment of pest control kind of only sees that there's one way of doing this and no one else gets a look in. It sounds kind of like a captured environment, is it? Uh, from what we've experienced, um, starting a company in 1999 uh, to do with restoration, planting over a million native trees on projects and recovering brown teal, um, bitten and things like tomtits, so making an environment healthy. Uh, yeah, uh, we were miles ahead of what was happening elsewhere. Um, and um, to... Uh, then end up in a situation where you're bringing a technology for the good of public um, with economics as well as uh, really good conservation outcomes and find that it's not actually wanted yeah. and that they're more than happy with their current management. Um, it's sort of a little bit hard when you are a consultant for sustainable design and land management where you forever should be achieving um, evolution in what you're doing, evolving your systems to enhance the environments in which you're learning, living in. Predator-free 2050. Limited? Is it a limited liability company? Who are they? It is a limited liability company, and um, it was originally set up after we already had introduced the technology. Um, its purpose, from what I can understand from the onset, was um, to disperse funds for the good of um, conservation and to aim towards a predator-free goal. Uh, it wasn't meant to be directed at any entity. Right. So... They seem to, well, okay, um, the chief executive, Rob Forlong. Do you know much about him? Oh, I've had communication with Rob. Um, he's been dropped in the deep end, really. A lot of the um, history sits behind him before his time. Um, and um, I, I, I really do um, 
think are in the in going forward Rob will turn the boat but um, until that's time um, uh, you know there's people like ourselves that will probably um, disappear from the scene because we can't afford to stay here yeah and zip uh, Zips is an interesting one. Um, when I presented our technology at Mystery Creek, um, we had already presented it to the Department of Conservation in 2014. Um, as you probably read from those articles, um, Al Bramley was the person we presented it to um, after um, several other people in DOC had directed me there. We yeah. ended up working with another person. Um, the person was Simon Kelton. He was uh, very helpful, but um, we weren't able to progress our technology. Um, Doc didn't want to develop it at that point in time because they said they'd over-invested in another technology. Um, that te technology, from what I can understand, was Good Nature. Um, Good Nature traps now have received approximately $12.5 million to get them to a very successful business. Um, it's really hard for a little company like us that started with absolutely nothing because of my chemical poisoning. Um, we had no money. Um, what happened and, there, if you don't mind? You, you, you uh, mentioned that I got asked. Our projects, within our projects, um, the planting projects, we have a grass up here called Kaikuya, and that Kaikuya overgrows the trees. So I was um, walking um, through uh, once or twice a year with a product called Galant, and um, I just overdosed myself with the chemical without meaning to. And um, also I've got a, a DNA characteristic that means that um, I can't metabolise that chemical properly. Right, okay. So it's but, just but, one of those unfortunate things. You don't learn that until after you go looking to see why something happens. Yeah, okay. Sorry to hear about that. But obviously it doesn't no. stop you being in the bush. No, it didn't, but it did initially because ACC wasn't there to be supportive. So um, we went oh, okay. for three and a half years with no funding in total. And our little <laughs> business went from a lot of employees down to just holding on. And um, I, to be grateful, uh, Department of Conservation gave me an opportunity to do uh, possum control contract tracks yep. in Pukati. And that's why we now have Environmate 100 because of that. So um, there is a positive side. Even okay, just quickly ex explain um, what you just mentioned there. The um, what, what was it? I, I've got it in front of me. Environmate 100. Is that what you said? Yeah, Environmate 100 is a tool. Uh, effectively, it's the New Zealand's first electronic device uh, for use in pest control. Um, and what it is is simply giving dinners over a 7 or a 14 or a 21-day time. Right. And it's got ability to deliver, deliver non-toxic dinners or toxic dinners. Right. And um, uh, basically, it creates a habit of return for all pests, both possums and rats. And then once you've got rats attending, you've got cats attending, trying to catch the rats. So you're accumulating ah, all the pests. Yeah. Even, you even end up with the uh, the pigs that attending your line to eat the dead possums, either oh, in gosh. the traps or by the cyanide. Yeah. And um, so it goes on. Mm. So you can manage the output of the poison basically so it's not uh, it's more uh, like a uh, sort of a guided bomb than a nuclear explosion 
Well, yes, uh, I, I understand where you're heading. Um, aerial 1080 is a very, very blunt tool compared with what we're working with. Yeah. And I use the wording blunt tool after the um, Auckland mayor um, suggested it was a blunt tool when he was uh, accepting it for use over um, Hunua's in 2015. Yeah, sadly, we doggedly stick to that. And uh, we've talked to uh, Clyde Graff about that, and we kind of know the backstory there. Okay, so this, because this is your invention, this thing, right? And um, and that building up, well, psychologically attacking the animal is really what you're doing, isn't it? Because you're luring them into a habit, which is never going to ring any danger signs for them, and you can just take the shot and they're gone. We're basically accumulating, um, uh, it seems really cruel, but um, we're accumulating the whole family and the cousins on site. And then by accumulating those animals on site, you can decide on the means of capture, whether that be toxin or traps. Um, toxin is um, a lot more uh, efficient for us in labour use. Um, traps are still extremely efficient if they worked well uh, without the need of toxins, but effectively it creates more labour. So they're anchored to trees, is that correct? So you, you target uh, yep, a specific they are, tree? They are put it, um, generally I put them at about um, waist to shoulder height. Um, if we're working on farmland, we put them above where cows are. We don't get the spillage that what the tr traditional bait stations do. And the benefit of it is we can actually administer a, a single lethal dose rather than bulk quantity. Yeah. So if you if you look at a single aerial 1080 bait, um, if we actually shared it, it's got enough juice, toxin in it, to kill around 24 rats. So if you're putting a hundred or, or 300 of those baits across the hectare, um, there's no way you've got that many rats there to clean it up. So yeah. you've got it everywhere, absolutely everywhere. We don't need to do that. And also, uh, obviously, um, for all the, the bird life and anything else that could be affected by any poisoning, it lowers the odds or increases the odds for them greatly, doesn't it? Well, it's about availability, and it's also about whether your toxin is a chain poison or whether it's uh, one that um, will, uh, if it doesn't administer a lethal dose, the animal will recover. So yeah. um, the, the main part that worries me about uh, some of the operations is the long-term effects. So um, I'll give you an example. In Pukati Forest, we just spent um, seven months working in there, um, and um, I had a feeling that um, crayfish were absent from the zone. So um, when we went in to do this contract work, every time we went across any waterway or creek or anywhere, we were looking, spending a minute or two looking for freshwater crayfish. There were none there. Um, so digging deeper, uh, it had aerial 1080 uh, poison in 1992, and it may have had a second one after that. Um, and when we look at the age of crayfish, they get to the age of 25 to 30. So it is now 30 years after. And um, whilst the aerial 1080 might have not killed everything at that point in time, um, there's a potential that they became sterile. So, so oh, okay, right, yeah. yeah. There were yeah. no crayfish in that 1,500 hectares across that uh, period of time, which is quite concerning. Um, more concerning is, Doc, don't take it seriously. 
they won't put time to understanding why there's no crayfish there. Why would they ignore that? I, you, I ask you. I mean, if a species question. not there, you'd think you'd be a little, little curious, like, oh, I wonder what happened to the crayfish. Oh, I'm just putting it out there. I don't know yeah. the reason no, no, why I know. they're not there. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing I would state is that we had a worker working for us at the same time that had been in there in a school group prior to the aerial 1080. And as a school group, they did find crayfish in abundance in one creek there near the campground. Okay, ground. maybe it's patchy. Who knows? But but yeah. whatever it is, it, you, you, you'd think it would hold a bit of interest for the people I, who are tasked I'm with managing it all. I'm quite disappointed. I'm quite disappointed about that actually coming yeah. from conservation perspective. Um, if you're doing damage 30 years out and you're not to know until 30 years out, well, then there's a problem. Yeah, and the people who are involved in it back then too are probably gone now too. So, Well, it's the people that are involved now should be more concerned. Yeah. Well, no, no, I know, but, uh, you know, the ones who started it all. Okay, yeah. so t tell us about the interactions you've had in trying to, um, I guess, sell in the end your um, trap invention idea. Um, it's, I mean, it's easy to get how it works, and and it's, you know, it's actually a brilliant um, thing. You can tell. Yeah. But what sort of interactions have you had with the That's establishment? And trying to sell this to them, given that I don't think we need to convince anyone anymore in this interview. I mean, it's obvious how it works and it's yes. going to work. Yeah. Yes. So I, I think what we have to look at the bigger picture and um, with our technology and lots of other technology, um, the technologies, uh, number eight wire technology, really, we perfect it. We uh, improve it while we're working. And um, it's yep. uh, easy to know that it works when you find piles of animals, both possums, rats, uh, whatever it might be that you're targeting, the whole system's working really well. The, the difficulty at the end of the day that we've um, come across is um, I, I don't have an academic degree. And, um, oh, okay, snobbery. So that was written in the article. Um, I'm, Seriously? I Seriously? I, I, I honestly don't know whether it's... Oh, you couldn't possibly know anything, Shane, if you don't have a degree, mate. Sorry. <laughs> so uh, it's not... It's an unfortunate thing. There's lots of smart people out there that leave school at 16 that if uh, they came through life in another way, they would come out with a doctorate. So... Um, so so the, the problem is that, that obviously the idea is a good one, but because it came from you... Where are your credentials? Don't think you can stand up here after we've done all this work and, you know, knock it out of the park. Um, but obviously, you'd think even despite that, that they'd be interested in the machine and how they can go about the whole predator-free thing, regardless of personality, you know, because it's obvious how it's going to work. It's interesting when, when you look at all the feedback that's come back is, and two things are quite evident is that we're more than happy with the technology that we are using. As Which is what? Which is what? Aerial 1080. And is that it's all? for convenience. And um, yes, it does um, create change in the environment. But um, what are you comparing it with? So if you're comparing Aerial 1080 with... Uh, no control, you aren't actually doing anything. Um, where it's lacking at the moment and what I've been trying to get since 2014 is a uh, research study that shows 
Arial 1080 versus uh, output contractor using whatever tools they want to use um, and a mode control area. That way you can show, uh, yes, uh, doing something is better than nothing, and but maybe Arial 1080 is convenient, but maybe the best outcome might be a trapper on the ground. And the reason I say that is totally. um, and it's, it, it's come quite evident, uh, evident lately uh, within Osprey work is that they've been doing a lot of aerial 1080 and um, we've also got ground control operators, but the ground control operators have got huge data sets which enable them to go back and target those pests properly each time. Yep. And the aerial 1080 group, they, they've got no data set. They don't know what's happened on the ground. It's the so lazy it's way. It's lacking. Isn't it? It's the lazy way. Oh, well, I wouldn't say it's uh, – I would say it was convenience. And um, I was having That's battle another with, word for lazy. <laughs> well, me. I'm not going to – I can't. Sorry, Paul. Yeah. No, but um, it, it looks lazy because, you know, it's, it's – first of it's, all, how can you deny multiple solutions? Um, no, what organisation would fixate solutions. on one solution when there is a whole range of them if and they weren't what, doing their job, you know? That, that's what the open public tendering system was meant to be all about. But in reality, um, you end up with a prescription that's aerial 1080 and ground control operators can't even function with that. They can't even tender. So they're discounted. If you look at Osprey uh, original tenders, they're done at a regional scale. So a startup uh, contract that can't participate because the size is too big for them to start with. The second thing is it's put up on a private tender link rather than the gets um, oh, government. Okay. Yep. And tender link costs you around three and a half grand to be a member. So it's a walled garden to filter yeah, out people like you. It is. It is. <laughs> and um, the contractors that get that work have both aerial capacity and ground-based capacity. And what they do is they manage to bring the tender price down quite low due to the uh, aerial component but their ground-based cost is actually probably up to three times more than what it would be if we were to do it. Um, here's um, – try and get this picture for everybody. So, okay, they're dropping their 1080 from helicopters into the bush. If you were to take, I don't know, a 1,000 of these traps and I don't know over what period you rotate them around and how many trees you get them around, probably three or 4,000 if they're rotated over, what, a month or two or whatever – and you're talking about families of animals sort of being hit with these traps, each tree, I suppose. You know, would there be a comparable kill rate um, to 1080 in the same sort of, you know, spatial area? So, 1080 so to, versus uh, doing it your way. So so to catch a couple of points that you've made there, um, uh, with the aerial 1080, they don't actually know what they've killed. And they don't right. actually know what was there before they started. So they can't verify any numbers whatsoever? No, it's based on percentages to do with the monitoring is based on on presence or absence. It's uh, not dealing with abundance, whereas we can actually deal with abundance. I can tell you, I can calculate roughly what the animals per hectare will be and then we okay, can well, what actually would it be? work. What would it be over well, a period? Well, every area has a different... Um, One that's getting the shit kicked uh, out of it, you know, that it was now. overrun with possums, let's say. Um, you know, so could... so uh, I asked, uh, to answer your question in two ways, and I haven't finished the last one, 
Um, the, uh, my uncle, who'd done a lot of possum hunting in deep bush, he says it's very rare that the possum numbers in deep bush get above one possum per hectare. So um, if per I hectare. go back to... Yeah, if okay. I go back to 2015, um, we asked Department of Conservation under OIA where there was a forest that had more than three possums per hectare, because at that point in time, they were uh, publicly uh, stating that possums are at about seven po possums per hectare. So I asked where I could go and trial my environment, because at three possums per hectare, I would be quite economic and they wouldn't have to pay me to do the work. We asked to uh, uh, go and do Rakuma arranges where we could do, um, uh, but we would have needed the use of cyanide. Um, that never actually happened because the two iwi on either side uh, never came back to us to enable us the cyanide consent. Oh, dear. So there's a lot of politics back there. We really did try hard to um, proof of concept that a large landscape scale where it wouldn't actually cost the government anything. Mm. Right. Yeah, because um, I think you said, what, uh, one possum per square per hectare. Per hectare. You see, I mean, I'm visualising every tree's got 10 of them in the yeah, trees, you know. It's interesting. The regional council up here always used to quote 32 possums per hectare was the most they ever took out of anywhere. But in reality, that was a very small pocket of uh, mature native forest uh, that had a lush pasture around it that had had never anything done to it. So the possums were purely using the bush as a habitat to sleep and they were grazing the pasture. So... Um, okay. My yeah. work in Pukati would suggest when I first went in there in 2009, there was around 2.4 possums per hectare. And um, when I went to Omahuta Forest in 2015, um, a trapper had been in there for quite some time doing uh, large trap lines. Um, the population of possum was estimated at 0 0.9 possums per hectare. And then when we went back into another area of Pukati, which we had done in 2009, but this was in 2000 and uh, just gone, 2021, um, the possum population was again up to around about 1.6 possums per hectare. Right. Mm. And, of course, so there are other pests. the rats. The rats, yeah, the rats is the well. issue. Yeah. yeah, the rats is the issue, and um, our work in 2015 identified that there was probably only around about three to four rats per hectare in Pukati Forest. Three to four rats per, per hectare. hectare? That's hardly any. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. We calculated they wanted to drop aerial 1080 on Totara North Forest um, in 2018, and it was stopped by the local hapu. Um, we already know that a contract that came out of there in 2015 after doing a contract and the tallies, he gave me the tallies and it, it equated to one possum per three hectares. So if you were looking at the aerial 1080 dropping um, value, they were going to uh, get paid $56 a hectare from what I can recall on that block if they dropped it and um, you're targeting one possum uh, per three hectares. So the actual cost per hot possum if you just look solely at the possum, the cost per possum was somewhere around that $150 plus. Ooh. 
Okay. So if you if you start looking at how as a possum, you know, how do we change what's doing and look at it in a positive form? Um, bounty payment at, at what we figured for our last work in Pukati Forest, $10 a head, we would have been able to remove all those possums. Wow. And you mentioned earlier on um, about uh, furs, um, because Fur, the other thing, the impression is that, 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 you know, no one's interested in that anymore. There's no, no money to be made there. No, 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 that's not true. There's a very good market again for fur. Um, the problem is that um, the actual skin market, um, uh, due to the animal rights people overseas, um, the, the sales of furs uh, declined in the 80s. Um, but it's really unfortunate because the same people that um, stopped the fur tray, which is something that cavemen have actually utilised, it's a natural product. Um, Absolutely. They are, they are yeah. wearing plastic clothing and they, all that microplastics is ending up everywhere. So what's the worth of outcome? Oh, that is my question there. So coming back to you um, uh, from just doing fur up here and putting it through a plucking machine on average i still can for my time put in uh earn between 25 dollars to 30 dollars an hour in northland well that's all right yeah just extracting the, it from your own efforts like that yeah but the, the the cost there is that if you look at a community group operation and i don't want to put them down they're doing a lot of good and especially people that are coming out just volunteering yeah. um uh, if if you look at a volunteer group uh, or a land care group, they're normally funded for their materials. So they're effectively funded for the capture. If you're a private contractor like I am doing fur harvest, you've got to fund the whole thing. So you're not only funding the materials, you're funding the transport, the travel, and then you've got your all your own hardware. You're not actually given any. And then you've got your own time, so you've got a lot to consider there. Well, sure, surely you know uh, there's a per carcass, whatever rate, because you're doing that's their that's what they want done. Well, one would hope that there was acknowledgement that, because they're already um, doing that by doing other methods. You still amortise exactly, it over the number of possums, exactly how much it costs for, to kill that possum. So we, we're, we're slowly breaking ground with the regional council up here, changing how they think. And um, it's positive, but it, everything just takes so long to make change. And it's um, quite frustrating. What, why, why do you think, quickly, why do you think that is? Because, again, uh, if you're really desperately worried about the bush, it's getting eaten to death by possums and, and birds are being cleaned up by stoves, all these things. You would be almost at a war footing of nimble ready to go to do anything to stop it yep. getting worse and make it better. Yep. You wouldn't sit around, oh, well, you know, we'll just think about that for a bit. You know, there's no so urgency, it's right? You, it's interesting you say that because they brought out the jobs for nature and there was a lot of money available. And admittedly, a lot of people have got jobs now. Um, but in reality, that same time, there was displacement of uh, between 2,000 to 2,500 people from part-time or semi-employment through right. um, pest control at the same time. And that wasn't spoken, even though it was um, promoted in, uh, you know, uh, to the MPs that you're actually displacing people. You're not actually creating new jobs. Um, yeah. If only that money had gone to those with the capacity within those regions, and the same for Predator 3250 Limited, rather than creating your own little subgroups, um, if you had built off the pre 
in capacity, we would have got a lot more. So in 2019, we personally had imported enough equipment that we could be doing 125,000 hectares a year. So that's six years ago. So when you look at the area covered by predator-free 2050, it's around 852,000 hectares. Right. And in that article, Rob uh, suggested that they are possum-free on 50,000 hectares. So if we, we as a small group of contractors using EnviroMate and other tools can do 125,000 hectares possum-free or near possum-free, surely that's a better outcome if it's only costing $30 per hectare, not totally. up to $2,500 yeah. per hectare. Well, that's the problem because from that $2,500, there's a, a bit of a food chain around that, I would imagine. Well, unfortunately, I think you'll find that many uh, um, many uh, elements in our society today uh, uh, got a burden at the top. And the practical people in the health system, the practical people everywhere are actually uh, limited to do their duty properly. And unfortunately, those practical people uh, no longer have the money to be able to live comfortably anymore because... Uh, the separation between the, the, the high-paid jobs and the lower-paid jobs, it's getting too far apart now. Yeah, I think um, you, I think, revisited um, um, your initial, um, you know, relationship that you had, but you revisited it later on. And there was a few comments in the article that I've been reading. And uh, and they kind of, one guy in there is kind of saying, um, yeah, you had a great idea, but it was the way you communicated it or something like that. Is that what you were sort of referring to before that sort of arrogance towards people who didn't have a, like a bulletproof it's, university it's, sort of. It's a little bit sad if somebody's got a very good idea. And um, in my case, I, I, I've done a lot of project management. So um, yeah. it's natural working with people with money that you deal with it quite quickly, efficiently, and um, you bring economics in as quickly as you can and you sell a really good idea. You show how the idea works. Yes. Um, so for me to uh, come back and deal with a state organisation, the local people are, are absolutely excellent, but the ones that sit higher up the tree, uh, they're protecting positions or they're wanting to uh, uh, extend their careers or I really don't know why they why they carry on like that. So um, uh, I suppose if I'm intolerant to um, some elements of what they promote, well, um, I can't change that because I'm actually aimed at the end goal and that's um, protecting conservation. Um, and also providing a resource so that it's not, not wasted. So yeah. maybe it's wheeled goals. I don't know. Mm. But uh, Any sign? to uh, see in that article, sure. to see in that article, um, Al Bramley's saying that I shot myself in the foot for trying to promote environment. That's rather rather poorly because yeah. he was the one that declined the funding after we delivered them with five years of cutting edge technology uh, that was meant to be uh, protected under IP. And what was his specific area or preference for pest control or, or whatever you call he it? He was, was working his... at that time in um, the science department, science and technology department and department of conservation. 
And um, I believe he took a dislike to me right at the start because I pushed him because he was quite slow in returning competition. reply. He had competition on his hands. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can't have that. So um, he, he, he moved. He moved quite quickly into zips. And um, uh, basically he's utilised the um, concepts that we were working with um, to extend um, oh, so he's, their operations. He's, he's run off with some IP, has he? I can't talk too much, Paul. It's um, it's a sensitive area, and I, unfortunately, because if you reveal uh, your, your your your, I don't know how much you um in briefing them on the product and all that sort of stuff, how much intel you transferred, but there would have been some. It was a, all I can say is it was an extremely large step change in how we worked in pest control. A, we brought electronics into um, yeah. the forest, and B. Uh, we delivered an outcome that wasn't expected, uh, uh, considering that most operators were working with mechanical craps or aerial 1080 at that time. Yeah. So it was a really large step. Way back then, we said that we could do $25 per hectare and deliver a really good outcome. We still say that for around $30 um, per hectare without the risk of um, not getting paid, um, because we work as output contractors, which means that for some reason, whatever the reason might be, um, we don't get to the target. Um, an output contractor is working for six months, which I have done before, worked for six months and gained no payment or only part payment. Yeah. Um, so we've got one contractor, one contractor that's working 12,500 hectares with two people and um, they're getting effectively zero and uh, it's costing the, the government probably around $40 per hectare. Okay, there's um, um, change of government. I don't know if that means much of a change in what would it be, DOC would be the overriding entity, wouldn't it? Um, to be to be fair, I've noticed a lot of change um, over the Labour government as well. It's just it's not right in your face, but um, there is reshuffling going all the time, and um, I, I, I do see change. It's just very slow. That's all. When you say yeah. reshuffling, like the old guards being slowly pushed out, or they're doubling yes. down and going for yes. more teenagers. No, no, no. The old guards are, are moving on and um, we've okay. got a chance of change. I just hope they use it positively. And the best way that they can actually achieve that is either um, opening up things for public tender, regardless of whether it's a volunteer group or whatever it is, it needs just to be opened up. And um, uh, the Department of Conservation, um, they've got a lot of really cool people in there. And ideally, I would actually flip it. I would actually get it ground-driven so that the yep. people on the ground are, are driving the calls and the ones at the top are purely there as managers supporting them. Well, <laughs> yeah, let's see what happens. Um, but you, you, you kind of sound positive there, though, as well, even though it, it's it's been such a drag from that, I can tell, from that um, angle. But you, you're sounding, you think this has still got a future, I can tell. Uh, it's got a future because there's a lot, of, a lot of good people out there. And, uh, you know, at all 
all levels, volunteers, uh, contractors, um, you know, there's a lot of good people out there. Uh, it's just but People would much rather be them. having people catch these things like that than being dropping. People don't like the poison in the forest. No one likes it. No, but that's true. And, and in reality, that's what we're confronting and is potentially the reason why we haven't gone forward is in, even today, Department of Conservation haven't enabled us when we're doing possum contracts right in the forest, right there, to actually do rat control with toxins. Sounds so like a whole, that, whole new approach. Um, yeah, well, it needs to be a multiple uh, species approach in it um, uh, to do sporadic aerial TNA. But with the least impact, the least impact. Exactly, exactly. That's so where I was where I was heading is sporadic drops of any control, whether it be ground-based or aerial. Um, you're only just um, uh, doing a short gap fix. You're, yeah. You need a longer-term focus. If you take the so, generations out. Yeah, no, it's, um, we've got a – and the other positive thing, I've just been at the Seeker Show last weekend um, – at Hamilton, and I congratulate those uh, people that ran that event. That's a really good event. Um, and I was actually talking to uh, some people from MPI, Osprey, and Doc, and I was congratulating them because uh, uh, the young people that were coming through to our stall, uh, you know, and they're from six years old to, you know, 17, 18 year olds, um, and some of the older ones they actually got a lot of care for the conservation side of it. It's not so much killing the pests, but um, to be out there doing it, and that's something quite major change, and um, that's the positive side of it okay, all. Okay, so they, it, it could, it, it, there could be an upside yet. Oh, I'm sure there's an upside in everything, and it would be horrible to be all doom and gloom, but, um, yeah, there's a lot that's not right, and but that's just a matter of reshuffling and getting that that's not right out and and changing it's been really interesting talking with you shane yeah i i hope i answered the questions you wanted yeah um so. answered and i've tried to be as fair as possible uh from our business point of view our business is pretty much um being killed um the opportunity to participate is gone because i had the last 10 years that i could have helped and yeah, um, that's a lot, age, of time. a lot of time. Age comes in, and um, it's the same with uh, uh, the New Zealand Feral Action Group. It's a collection of 130 contractors across New Zealand. Um, we've that, I'm not the only one feeling the pinch as a contractor, and many right. of those contractors are at uh, you know retirement age, and they haven't been able to replace themselves because they haven't had the work. Yeah, so you lose all the. The you knowledge lose the and, knowledge. Yeah, you're, the ability you're losing to the knowledge. do the yeah. yeah. Mm. Which is very disappointing. It's uh, not just the knowledge of how to deliver the uh, pest control, but it's the knowledge of the landscape. Yeah. Mm. And that's yeah, yeah. Very, it's very like cops on the beat. You need people on the beat. You need, you know. You do. And that's good if um, the Jobs for Nature um, have uh, got a small percentage of people that probably uh, can go forward. But um, uh, it, it was mentioned that you've got two types of people working in the forest nowadays. You've got people that work as an employee 
and you've got people who are contractors that are self-employed yeah and um both people need to be worked with in a different way and the outcomes and the effectiveness of each is very different because one's driven and one's just purely providing a service yeah yeah well the thing about so, um you know hearing you talk the what you've um your concept what you've come up with the thing is it's so bloody obvious <laughs> you know it really is like I, like one of the things that's very obvious to me is that we can work a small piece within a larger forest but it, it's effectively like a bath with water if you've got the larger forest being the bath full of water and you pull the plug out you have temporary relief but then from then on everything from around that plug hole starts falling down again yeah yeah so um unless you actually focus with total landscapes and ideally it would be local people from that region with those jobs are permanently maintained yeah, good them. local jobs yeah local jobs and um also uh they need to be monitored um, and, uh, uh, you know, to make sure that there is gain actually happening. Yeah, you've and, got to account for um, yeah. Also, uh, uh, with, uh, if we were to work with a bounty system or some other system, those areas need to be balloted so that everybody has equal chance to participate. Yeah, really interesting um, talking with you uh, about the Environmate 100, and people can look, they could dial that into some search and they'd, they'd find pictures and stuff like that. Of Yeah, and yeah. thanks a lot, Paul, for your interest in the subject. And uh, let's all hope for positive change and that some of the, the old wood is removed and fresh thinking can come through. Well said. Shane Hyde, thanks for coming on RCR. Thank you, Paul. See ya. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.